Episode 34 of the Falls Neutral. I'm Peter Tonchinomi, and with me today, Eric and Garrett. Hi, gentlemen. Hey, How's Good it going? morning, afternoon, evening. Somebody said that we were not being technical enough. We weren't having enough technical subject matter. So today we're going to talk specifically about frames and suspension and all of the different ways that you could figure out how to get an engine and a rider down the road on top of wheels and uh, be able to point it in the right direction. Nowadays, pretty much everything you're going to run into, you can expect to see telescopic forks, swing arm rear suspension, oil damped coil springs front and back, front inside the tubes. There's a million other ways that you could make that work if you wanted to. That seems to be what works best and is most common but it may not always be that way. And it has been a really long road to get to this point where we're at. And it's pretty impressive how many different designs there are and have been tried out in motorcycles over the years just to get us to where we're at now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's pr- been some pretty creative people out there because, you know, it doesn't really seem like there'd be that many different ways you would suspend a motorcycle. But on the contrary, there have been dozens. Uh, one that sticks out in my head right away was the Triumph Sprung Hub. When they were only making hardtails and they didn't have any rear suspension, Edward Turner, who designed Triumphs at the time, wanted to come up with some way to insert some type of suspension but not change their frame. And he came up with the Sprung Hub, which was literally a hub you bolted in that could go up and down on springs So the axle was solid, but the outside of the wheel was going up and down over bumps. And uh, Mark Zimmerman from Motorbooks International, uh, he's quoted on Wikipedia as saying, one of the weirdest and worst rear suspension systems of all time. One of the first devices to carry a cast-in warning. These should only be taken apart if you're experienced, brave, and have the right tools. They were... They were... Horribly hard to work on because they actually had captive springs inside them and it was really hard to get them apart without having a spring fly in your face or hit someone else across the room because they were under tension. And they also didn't work. They actually yeah. made them handle like they had a hinge in the middle. Think about a, a swing arm and how rigid it has to be side to side. They just, they made them wobble at high speed terribly and they only used them i think eight or nine years but they they basically made triumphs handle horribly until they finally gave up and went to a swing arm which was what a lot of people were going to at the time yeah and we'll think about it too because there's no significant dampening effect you have some shock absorption but not a whole lot of dampening. And it's going both ways, too. So the ability to keep the rear tire connected to the ground with a design like this is is pretty slim. But at least they made it so that it only goes up and down and not forwards and backwards. So the chain drive doesn't want to pull the wheel uh, forwards and backwards. The wheel only travels up and down. And the slot for the axle was actually in a slight arc, so it kept your chain tension the same, kind of like the swing of a swing arm, but it didn't have a whole lot of travel, if you can imagine how much spring you could fit inside the hub. So you got all this wobbly handling and not really any effective comfort. You know, there wasn't enough travel for it to really do any good. But with the inch that you have in the springs of the seat and the inch that you have in the hub, that's two inches of travel. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I, I have in the past known some people who had hardtail choppers who were like, oh, no, it's comfortable. It's, oh, this is... No, you cannot say... <laughs> nobody could say that with a straight face. <laughs> and and you look at their seat, and they've got those giant springs underneath their... It's like, okay, you're 
you're isolating it from your butt, but that doesn't actually help the handling at all. No. And I, and I, the one guy I did ride with used to keep, do like 15 to 18 PSI in his rear tire. Yeah. So that there was at least, you know, going over potholes and stuff. That, that was his suspension was the flexing of the sidewall of the tire. Hey, but it looks cool to some people. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Now we're making, not making fun, but talking about how inferior the sprung hub was. But there are some things that have kind of been pushed to the wayside for reasons of manufacturing or things like that, that really probably didn't deserve it. Uh, one good example is the Springer front end. It completely went away when everybody went to telescopic forks, mainly because given the metallurgy and the manufacturing they had at the time, it used to wear real rapidly. Material technology caught up and Harley went back and started making the Springer soft tail with really, you know, some hardened steel, some really good bushing materials that, that didn't wear out and didn't get oval and stuff like that. And they put a, put a hydraulic damper and suddenly they could make it work real well. From a design standpoint, it was actually one of the few Harleys in the early 2000s I thought was a, interesting. That was kind of the big improvement is, is having the dampening on it. Cause like I was saying with the, the sprung hub, when you only have a spring, the point of motorcycle suspension, there's kind of two components to it. And one of those is to keep your tires on the ground you know, and bumps and whatnot. And so having that dampening was really kind of key to keeping that tire connected to the ground. So it was maintaining traction. So right. you integrating want... that was a big improvement. Shock absorbers really should be called dampers because the springs are what absorb the shock. The damper is to keep the spring from bouncing back and forth over and over again. It takes it and pushes the wheel back down on the ground and holds it there long enough for all of that energy to, to leave the spring. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of interesting to see them because they're a really good looking suspension. They just typically didn't work that well, the Springers. And so to see them being used on motorcycles again, just with some modern improvements to them, is kind of cool. I like seeing it, actually. Now, I have to say, I think the Springer front end that Harley reintroduced is actually not very attractive to me. The wheel's too far forward. The suspension looks like it's something on a tractor to me, you know? It, yeah. Well, aren't most Harleys barely above tractor technology? <laughs> oh, uh, and yeah, I'm... <laughs> probably not even at tractor. Tractors have progressed quite a long ways. Uh, Harleys, I don't know if they have. Um, but yeah, I think... <laughs> okay, that's Eric and Garrett. Please address <laughs> all of your complaints and your flames to them. Hey, they've got like GPS controlled tractors and all this kind of stuff nowadays and... And Harley has just now improved the Springer front end. <laughs> well, it's kind of kind of like uh, Rusty was saying when he's on. You know, they've got the 18-speed, 9-clutch transmissions for those things that you can just slam through the gears at full throttle while you're pulling a, some kind of implement through the ground. Yep. Well, and the only other thing that I would say about Springer front ends is they typically are pretty narrow, the material being used. And so... For something like a Harley, it's not that big of a deal, but for a performance bike, they just don't have the rigidity needed to keep a really good, firm, stable feel on the ground. But like I said, for just a cruiser motorcycle, it's no big deal. And some of that is, you know, you kind of develop one technology and then you switch to something else and you develop that. And then you go back to the first one and you go, oh, I can improve that. Well, at the same time, you're improving the other one. Yeah. If you look at a... 1979 set of forks and you look at the size and oh. the and the rigidity and the technology that's in upside down forks from today well that's just right. one big change is the upside down configuration made such a big difference in how they worked and rigidity and things like that yeah well i think that was probably one of the primary reasons for um having an inverted fork is that the bulk of your of your tube is a much greater diameter, and mm -hmm. so you get a tremendous amount more rigidity out of that. And also, um, where did, where it attaches to the triple tree, yeah. the yokes at the top, yeah. the steering yokes, 
you've actually got a much bigger diameter where you're holding on to it on the motorcycle. So yeah, were, right. were motocross bikes the first to really implement upside down forks or was that a road race thing or was it about well, the same time? No, they it, it was, it was, it. uh, now the WP at the time it was white power. Yeah. I, mean, I was going to say in first. Yeah. KTM. And, and I don't know if they've always used WP suspension, but, um, they in the mid eighties at least were using inverted forks, but the Japanese, they didn't really start until, uh, kind early of the early 90s. 90s. It really yeah. wasn't even uh, really common until the mid-90s to have mm-hmm. an inverted fork. Yep. And then on street bikes, I mean, I'm just trying to think on the top of my head. I know that they were around, but on sport bikes, they really didn't come about the same time, kind of the mid-90s. I'm thinking about like um, even like an R6, for instance. Uh, they still make them with a, a right side up mm-hmm. fork. The R6S. The, the you can get it R6, both ways. The regular, like the YZF R6s, those were, I'm trying to think back into the 90s. I think the FCRs were up right side up, and I think when they went to, I can't remember where it was, but somewhere in the late 90s, I think, is when it switched. Yeah, they still use both. Performance motorcycles, even still now, they have the inverted forks, but on budget motorcycles, must be cheaper to make. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I, and I wonder if that is a case of the other one was developed first and there's just more tooling out there to do it that way, or whether there's truly something about the technology that makes it easier and cheaper to do that. I guess it's it's smaller, Probably steel, both. smaller springs and everything else. Probably a little of both. I mean, when you've been tooled up, when factories are tooled up to make one thing for 40 years... You know, it's then you switch over. Right. You got all to to do new tooling on that. So, especially for for the volume that you do for OEM, you know, it's if you're if you're building aftermarket stuff for performance, that's one thing. But when you're trying to put it on a hundred thousand motorcycles, you know, that's a that's a whole different scale. So, yeah. One thing that uh, one technology that I'm really surprised isn't being used more is leading link forks, either. Here, here's a trivia question. Do you know what the differences between leading link and Earl's link forks are? You know, when you look at the old BMWs like Slash 2s and they have the, the leading link forks, and they're called Earl's forks. Do you know what the difference is? What makes mm. an Earl, Earl's link fork Earl's? I do not. Earl designed it? Yes, he <laughs> had a patent on it, but the the innovation was a solid axle from side to side, instead of just having two pivots, it's truly like a one-piece swing arm that goes all the way around, and the pivot point is all the way at the back. A lot of leading link forks just had two little arms on either side. The pivot was up somewhere in the middle of the wheel, and Earl was the one who said, oh, you could put that pivot all the way in the back, behind the front wheel. So that was the innovation that made the... Earl's link, the Earl's link that he patented. Yeah. So many, many sidecars still use those front forks. Mm-hmm. Even, uh, I'm trying to think of, I can't remember who it was that built a road racer with leading link front forks like in the 70s and used really nice Marzacci damper units, you know, like rear shocks on it. Mm hmm. And they did it because they could do different damping rates up at the time when they didn't have like quickly modifiable suspension. They could just take those shocks off, put another set on that was either a different height, different spring rate, different damping, and they could try different suspension stuff. And I can't remember. I'll think of it as I'm, soon as we get off this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. looking at the uh, at the picture you uploaded here. And it's funny because I can see a direct link between the Earl's. Uh, fork, and then what BMW came up with later with their tele telelever front end, right? Yeah. So I mean, you can you can I mean it's different, but you can kind of see the, an evolution of of what of, of the thinking of it. It's different, but you can kind of see the parallels to it. The tele now they've got the telelever, and did they didn't they have two different ones, or am I thinking? Yeah, of... I want to say a paralever and a telelever, but I could get right. I could have that backwards. Uh, one of the two, I forget. 
I can't keep their name straight, but one of the two of them is basically the Hasek front end. And if anybody's interested in all of this stuff we're talking about, if you really want to delve into this, Tony Fole, his last name is spelled F-O-A-L-E. Go to TonyFole.com. He is the steering and damping guru. He has every possible imaginable discussion of all this stuff on his website. And it's fascinating, but he's really a data geek and he dives pretty deep into all this stuff. And a lot of it is he was there for a lot of the history of it. He was developing his front ends the same time Hasek was and Parker developed the rad system. And so he was very interested in letting people know there was a difference between what he developed and what some of the other uh, inventors developed. So a little bit of it is self-promotion. Nothing wrong with that. The Parker rad system or linkage or whatever you call it, what I just mentioned was similar to the Hasek that was licensed to Yamaha for the GTS 1000. Yep. Which is one of the few production bikes that really had that in the Bimota. Is it Tessie or Tessie? Tessie. Uh, are the two that really had truly unique, unusual steering. And both of them sold about the same amount of units. Very few. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I have to say, GTS 1000, I think, is one that I would probably want to bring up next week about... Collectible. Something that could be an appreciating collector's bike. I think the only thing that's going to hurt that one is I think too many people took care of them. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Uh, the uh, and and you could throw in the same vein that the well pretty much any Bimota will be collectible at some point just because there's so few of them, and they're as much artwork as they are anything else except for the one that was designed by the French guy, uh, which was ugly as hell. But you know everyone's got to have oh, one. Oh yeah, the one that had the had the it, it was some kind of weird. It kind of looked like a Power Rangers dragon thing. Something yeah. like that. I'll find it in a second. But yeah, so everyone's got to have. You're not if you get you get one bad one here and there. Eh, it's okay. But but that is the question is: Are those bimotas undervalued? Yes, they're okay. expensive and collectible. But would you make money if you bought one now? There's a whole lot of people that bought Orange County Choppers in about 1995 <laughs> for 50. Grand. Hey, that was going to be on my list. <laughs> <laughs> And they're um, now trying to unload them for ten grand and not right. finding any buyers. Yeah, no, it's funny. You, it's funny you say that because on um, in that same kind of vein, there was another guy. He was out out in Arizona or something. I think it was Borgat or Bourget or something like that. Oh yeah, and he, mm -hmm. he's another guy who built you know eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollar choppers. And um, there's one for sale on a local car board for like. $21,000, and I'm like, oh, you're not taking a bath on that one, are you? <laughs> yeah, because they were, they were what, 50 to 70 for, for a cheap yeah. yeah, that's for a cheap one. Yeah. Well, anyways, we're getting off our subject of uh, of suspension, but uh, that's probably a hardtail. So <laughs> you're spending yeah, $50,000 for... And probably brutal to ride for more than, you know, mm -hmm. bar to bar. That's about as far as you'd want to drive it, ride it. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that both the leading link designs and the Hasek and the Rad and the the Paralever or Paralevers their their rear suspension. Telelever is their front suspension. Paralever okay. is the is the parallelogram rear suspension so you don't get shaft effect on the BMWs. Okay, I feel better that I'm I've got my term straight. <laughs> um, but all of those the neat thing about them is they've got built-in anti-dive. You don't have brake dive. When you hit the front brake, the front end doesn't compress the front suspension, which is really cool. And it's really interesting, all of the dead ends that manufacturers came up with to try and prevent that with telescopic forks. In the early 80s, I want to say at least Suzuki mm -hmm. and... I think Honda. Suzuki, Yamaha, and Kawasaki all had anti-dive valves linked into the front brake so that when you grab the front brake, your brake pressure closed a valve 
in the in your forks. There was a there was a little jumper front brake lines went to this little actuator on the fork, then went to your brake. Well, the problem is it really killed your brake feel because instead of just squeezing them, you had to squeeze it enough to close that valve and then squeeze it enough to get your brake. So it didn't work very well. Honda did something really cool. And I thought typically of Honda for the time, I'm, I'm not nearly so impressed with Honda nowadays, but they came up with track TRAC, torque reactive anti-dive control, which was the rotation of the rotor pushed forward and closed a valve. It was like, it was like a pin. Neither one of them was really great, but if you go back and you look, Honda had a really cool linkage arrangement, and I don't know if I can find a picture of it, and it's kind of hard to describe, but basically they used the energy of the fully floating right. caliper that could just spin around, grabbing the disc. It was attached up at the top of the forks so that when you put on the brakes, the force of the, the friction tried to push the caliper up against the, the top of the suspension. When they were using it on the race bikes, they had like these little uh, hind joints and a whole bunch of different holes on levers for different amounts of leverage. So you could tune it in exactly how much the rider wanted. It was very cool and very simple, and it didn't affect anything to do with the forks or the brake fluid or anything like that. And I thought it was really neat. And evidently, it was not worth the complexity of adding it, but I still thought it was a really cool idea. Yeah. So one on my uh, RZ500, they and I think on the RZ350s as well, they actually sold plates to block off the anti-dive just to give you better brake feel. Right. Or oh, better, really? better feel. So um, and interestingly enough, um, and this goes to a, a few different bikes that have gone in, in MotoGP or GP racing in general over the years, um, the, the Elf Honda bike back in the early 80s to, you know, um, Bomoda did run the like the Tezzy style front end once or I think for a year or two in, in World Superbike. And uh, I know Yamaha messed with the, the the Parker front end on their GP bikes, never ran them in competition, but at least tested it. And and what's interesting is, yes, it helps the anti-dive, but everyone grows up on, well, there's two things. Everyone grows up on normal forks, so you're used to a feel and it feels completely different at speed. Um, so, so it doesn't feel right, you know, air quotes, right. Something's not mm-hmm. right there. The other part too, is because of the way the fork compresses under brakes. And as you turn, it also speeds up the steering geometry a little bit. So, uh, that was the other part that that was probably why it didn't feel right is because, um, the steering felt slower in the mid corner because it doesn't have that kind of built in geometry change at the bottom of the stroke so uh and 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 i you know no one can get their brains around that or at least they couldn't uh as a writer nowadays you probably could um but no it it makes sense because you want to have something with enough stability so that when you're not on the brakes going down the the main straight you don't want to have a wobble you want to have enough trail but when you're in the turn you want it to be really responsive when you're, you know, going around the corner. So it kind of makes sense that you would want that automatic adjustment of that. The problem is you only get that difference when you're under braking. When yes. you're accelerating in a turn, you don't necessarily have that quicker steering, and it's going to change mid-corner when you get off the brakes and whack the throttle open. The back end's going to squat, the front end's going to extend, and, and all of a sudden you, you don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think modern riders, while they're used to what they grew up with, um, I think newer, younger, younger riders, let's just say younger riders, could adapt more quickly because they're used to riding so many different things now. Um, from motocross bikes to training bikes to, you know, Grand Prix to whatever. Um, I, I, I think it could be easier if someone wanted to take a, a gamble. But then on the other side of it is, well, th- everyone knows what works, so why mess with it? 
which was one of the disappointments in Moto2 when that came out, is that it basically allowed for free reign of chassis. And there were there was nothing really radical about anybody's chassis that they brought out. I mean, yeah, there were small tweaks here and there, but there were no different front ends that they were hoping to see um, to advance it. Everyone just went very conservative routes because they know it worked. Yeah, and you kind of see that in so many things where you see an explosion of a whole lot of experimentation. A lot of it works, a lot of it doesn't, but it pushes things forward. And then everybody goes, okay, this is what works until somebody else kind of disrupts that whole paradigm and does something different. I'm thinking back uh, in Formula One, uh, Elf, the six-wheeled Tyrell cars, you know, mm-hmm. the, the double sets of front wheels for steering, and then they did double rear wheels for traction and yep. things like that. And they didn't go anywhere, but that was because there were other limitations they were running up against, but they learned a whole lot in the process. Yeah, I mean, you could look at Chaparral. They, they basically put plastic skirts and then ran a two-stroke motor for exhaust fans to suck the car down on the track right. for early early aero effect, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that got outlawed. And then Lotus, ten well, yeah, about 10 years, 8 to 10 years later, came around and said, oh, hey, let's try this again. And all of a sudden that worked. And then we got active active suspension in the early 80s, I think it was, that got banned very quickly um, in Formula One, so... And that's the thing is, as soon as somebody really does something innovative, the first thing the sanctioning body is going to do is outlawed. <laughs> so, and that, and what's interesting is, and, and this goes for, at least for motorcycles, usually racing leads development. And in this case, street bikes are leading development suspension wise, because now we're getting essentially active suspension in street bikes, or at least electronically controlled suspensions. And essentially that stuff has been outlawed in racing you know you still have to do mechanical clicks for everything you can't adjust it on the fly right yeah or at least you can't legally do it but you know you know at at what point are we going to get to the point where somebody could could uh sit on the sidelines with an iphone and you know play with the suspension rates of a production bike i mean that's that's not too unbelievable that you could do that now Well, I mean, mean, not not right now, but if somebody wanted to build that technology into suspension components, you could, there's no technology hurdles other than just putting together and making it work. The technology's all there. Yeah, real time, you'd have to have like real time data connection to between the two, um, which could be interesting. They'd each have to connect over a cellular network. But I mean, to, for that to work, if you can, I'm I'm thinking back to when Jeff Glucker did his his track day in the Cadillac, and you all you had to do was hook your uh, your camera up, and the uh, the car already had all the telemetry yes pickup points in it that you could just dump it onto yep. the onto the screen. OBD two yeah you just connect it through OBD two right. yes and it wouldn't be that hard to have well. Uh, a lot of the racing now, they use the transponders for, you know, timing laps and stuff like that. You've already got some wireless stuff going on there. Yeah, there, well, yeah, that's a whole, that's a, there's a whole, a whole thread we could go down because <laughs> um, we could talk about how Jeep, Jeeps have been hacked like, sort of that way. Right. Um, right. For yeah, that, yeah. and that was a kind of a big deal. But again, the thing is, is that there's a, cellular radio in the vehicle um, for uh, crash reports and stuff like that that connects to the OBD2 and that's how you could do it mm-hmm. essentially where on a motorcycle you don't ne- you don't necessarily have for the lack of a better term an OBD a motorcycle equivalent of an OBD2 port at least not that I'm aware of it well some point. of them do I mean my spider's got a got an OBD2 CAN bus does it yeah it doesn't oh. have the whole feature set a car would have you know yeah but then have... there would have to be a cellular uh link right. connecting connected right. to that so that you could do right. something like that so yeah. anyway and it doesn't it doesn't even have to be a cellular link I mean it could just be uh radio frequency that cuz that'll travel you know, even a, a, a small radio frequency transmitter will travel three quarters of a mile or so without yeah, any I mean, issue. If I can talk to my wife with a wireless <clears throat> uh, 
helmet communicator half a mile away. Right. You know, the, there's no reason on a motocross course that you couldn't be yeah, sending telemetry. Yeah, gets the, their own frequency. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Hack your competitor's frequency. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's mess hey, with this. Hey, what frequency are you operating on today? Okay, he's full soft on all his damping. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm going to change tracks a little bit. We were talking some about the... Uh, anti-dive and how people were comfortable with that and everything. Uh, I can't think of the website, but uh, there's a website out there where a guy goes into extreme detail about girder front ends and how they, uh, how to set them up. And it's the whole secret is the linkages, the length of the, and arc of the two linkages that are in parallel with each other when it goes up and down, the size of that trapezoid, or it's not really a parallelogram because they aren't all necessarily parallel, but uh, that controls so much of how girder front ends work that most people, according to this guy, I have never ridden a bike with a girder front end. I would like to, but he said the whole thing is you can pretty much tweak out any bad behavior you don't like and make the thing handle completely differently with just changing the suspension, you know, the, the pickup points for the suspension linkages at the top. And to me, that makes a whole lot of sense because I hear guys talking about what they do with cars, you know, when they modify cars and how much change you can get if you just move, you know, an upper or lower suspension mm-hmm. arm half an inch can really change how a car behaves. And I was like, that that to me fascinates me. The fact that you would have something that could be so easily tweakable. The girder front end seems kind of odd to me. And, and perhaps they have this figured out, but it would seem like with such a short arc that the, the fork travels on, that it would change your, your uh, wheelbase. Uh, like, when it's fully uh, down, for instance, and then when it's like at the midpoint and it's swing with such a short arc, it would seem like it would move your front wheel out like, you know, a measurable distance. But maybe they have that it, all kind of worked out with if, the top link and, and like being a different length than the bottom link. Yes. And this is what's fascinating <clears throat> is if you get it set up correctly, you have less of that than you have with telescopic forks. Oh, really? Hmm. Because if you think about telescopic forks, as it's coming up, it's coming back as well. You're changing your wheelbase yeah. more so with that than you will with properly designed girder forks. But uh, yeah, so if the front, if the if the top um, arm was just slightly longer than the bottom arm, then as it was traveling up, it would keep your front wheel in the same place. Um, it wouldn't move forwards or backwards because, yeah, the bottom one would want to move the front wheel out. The top one, if it were just slightly longer, it could kind of counteract that. So, yeah, I guess you could probably work it out. You know, as much as I said, I I think that that uh, Springer forks look strange and bad to me. Uh, a little earlier today, I sent you guys a uh, a picture of a Triumph chopper that i think the girder forks on it just now they they're undamped so you know you'd have to do something to to improve the the damping quality somehow but i just think if they're not super outrageously extended a chrome girder fork just looks really cool (laughs) the problem is that once you put a disc brake on it, you have all kinds of hardware you need to hang off of them, and they don't look nearly as clean unless you have a drum brake on the front. They're they're kind of, you know, on a modern bike, it's tougher to make them look that really nice, clean appearance. I 100% disagree with you. Uh, On a modern bike, um, I've seen some modern girder forks that use a really super substantial piece of metal, um... Like so, the two the two bars that are going down from the girders down to the wheel, and then like a, a fully machined um, 
you know, girder piece or two of them with like a really nice clean shock in it um, that looks really modern and really substantial. And I think it looks amazing. Are you thinking of like the uh, uh, the Confederate with those huge bars on them? Because oh, the, I I can't remember specifically what the Confederate used. I, I, just, I but, just sent you a picture of it, and I just, oh well, no, this isn't okay, the Confederate. Okay. That I, I was, was really I of. was really hoping you weren't going to tell me you thought the Confederate front end was attractive. No, 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 not at all. Um, that is uh, the uh, no. So those ones are much more <laughs> substantial that I'm thinking about. Um, I don't know if I can find a picture or whatever, but um, there's something much much more clean than that. Would be better. I, I just thought of it. One that I think just looks really cool in a weird, funky, unique way is the 47 Ronin Buells that have the radiator above I've the I've never fork. even seen this before. What is this off of? 47 Ronin Buells? The, the last 47 Buells when, uh, not this last time, but at some point when they... One of the times they were going out of business, yeah. the last 47. <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down at all. <laughs> a company, uh, I think it was when Harley closed them out, and uh, a company bought the last 47 Buells yeah. and made 47 identical specialized custom Buells out of them. Was, was this a deal with Magpul? Didn't Magpul do something with that? It could have been. Um, I saw it, uh, the guy got interviewed with uh, on uh, Ronan. J- Ronan Jay works Lano's. forty-seven motorcycles. Yeah, looks very Tron. But yeah, um, yeah a... this is the eleven twenty-five motor. So yeah, this is while they were still part of Harley Davidson. Right, and I, I just think it's. A very cool, different look on a on a girder front end. Yeah, although they've covered it all up, which um, well, I don't know. You I mean, still see the linkage at the top. Yeah, I, I suppose if you had like a, a, a perfectly side view of it, you might be able to see more of it. But yeah, I mean, one one of the neat things about the girder system is how simple it is. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, Pete, when you put a disc brake on it, and then you got to run lines down uh, to it, and you start adding hydraulic hoses um you kind of take a little bit away from it but uh they are so simple and they look really good that one is a little bit substantial kind of like the confederate though so yeah these were buell's a deal with magpole and some some other company and that's how it all okay came together yeah so it's and and i put a link in the uh in the notes there for if you want to send people there later than that, and there's a whole thing of where they started, what we kept the redesign and then what the bike ended up being. It's on their website. So, um, one of, uh, yeah, one of the coolest designs was the, uh, Honda did what they call quadrilink, quadra parallel, parallelogram, three link. I forget what it was called, but it was, Back in the works motocross days when for the national or the the world championship, you could run non-production work bikes. They came up with a leading link, long travel. Uh, I think it was their 125 twin that they had. They actually had a twin cylinder 125 motocross bike that had this, these beautiful castings aluminum castings and linkages with big long forks and it was so incredibly expensive to manufacture and a lot of weight there and a lot of effort had to be done i think they used some some really exotic alloys and stuff to try and keep the weight down but just for looks it is the coolest looking uh bike i don't remember if it was 125 or 250 but uh very yeah. very cool looking different design yeah, pretty wild. And it's really interesting that they use a twin cylinder motor too. Yeah, and then they that's another thing that no, you can't do that. The sanctioning body says, "Nope." And and I understand you don't want somebody to be able to buy a championship because they can spend more money than everybody else. But it kind of squashes innovation. Innovation. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, when you look back and you look at 
like in the 60s where they had nine speed, 12 speed, 50 cc GP bikes. Mm. And then they came out and they're like, nope, six speeds. Can't have more than that. Yep. And who knows what might have happened if that technology was allowed to grow a little bit. Well, even even going back to the where street bikes are leading race bikes, dual clutch transmissions are outlawed in Moto G. Let's say just in Moto GP. Right now, they they go and they spend. Um, I can't remember the name of the company. It's a British engineering firm, but uh, pretty much every or they make it, and then everyone loosely license the design. But you're spending you know four hundred five hundred thousand dollars to design something, and each of these transmissions is thirty five thousand dollars. Okay, it's a race bike. I get it, but it basically makes it kind of like a DCT without actually being a DCT. Where if you just had let them have it, you know, it would you could you could chop a zero off it, and already we've got DCT bikes, you know, multiple DCT bikes on, running around on the street. So I'm not seeing where it's a cost savings well, or anything. So in in general, I really dislike a lot of racing because anytime you have spec anything, it ruins it to me. When you tell people you have to use a Honda engine, there's really I don't no. Necess- I don't necessarily agree, but. It would be neat if there were both. Like, have a spec class. But then in I'm GP, okay with, let it be unlimited. Like in car racing, the Miata Cup, where everybody yeah, races the Miata. I that's cool. Yeah, I seeing the racers compete against each other, nothing else, right? So that's that's neat, and I get it. But, yeah, GP so, or some of the big leagues, they need to allow more innovation in there so because we're, right the, now we're it's Moto, stagnant. Where Moto2 came about, the rules behind it where it's – you can do whatever you want for a chassis within these kind of standardized kind of things, but you know after that you're good to go. Um, but you have to use a Honda spec motor. Was the fact that uh, 250GP were two strokes, and really the only ones left that were interested in it were Aprilia. And if you wanted a top spec Aprilia, it was you know eight hundred thousand dollars for the bike, and then if you wanted the parts program to go with it, that was another eight hundred thousand dollars. And then if you wanted you know technical support on that, that was another eight hundred thousand dollars. So what they didn't want was people spending your team's having to spend $3 million for a 250 GP for a support class bike. And the idea behind Moto2 was that you could have a full-on race bike for under $100,000. Now, there's still have figured out ways around that to make money for, you know, KTM and Honda and Aprilia and, and everyone else who's involved in that now. But that was the idea, and that's why they went with a spec-sealed Honda engine for that. I get it, and... I will say I like spec racing. For example, the RC390 Cup. I have probably yeah. spent more time watching that online this year than any other motorcycle racing this season because there were just so many cool close races and you had a lot of young kids that were really hungry and were really going to hang it out to try and stick with the guy in front of them. So you had a whole lot of action and, and it was really, really interesting. What I don't like is when you have a quote-unquote formula class Right. That is masquerading as formula when it's really spec, with maybe the exception of tires. Yeah. Well, see, that, that, that's I, one I of my she... biggest ones is, is tires. I want to see competition where tires. So many times I can remember back before they had spec tires that the choice of tire was what won you the champion. You right. Know, there, there were a couple of years in there that Michelin and Dunlop went back and forth and back and forth, upping each other as far as tire technology and and, and help people win championships because they were better. Well, and not only that, but there was favoritism that I know went on back in the AMA days. Joe Average, well, I hate to say Joe Average, but if you were a competitor, non-factory rider, non-factory support rider riding an AMA and super sport or super bike back in the day, and you went over to the Dunlop tent to get your tires, you got these tires. But if your name was, you know, Miguel Duhamel or Matt Maladin or one of these other guys, you got a theoretically the same tire, but it wasn't the same tire, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. absolutely. There were always ringers that were in the back under the tarp yeah. that went to people who had a chance to win. But I think, you know, I, I bet if you call up Wisco Piston, you can't get the same Pistons that somebody else could get that could splash their name all over, you know, Cycle News. And I'm dating myself by using Cycle News, but I still read it. <laughs> still read it every week. Now I just do it digitally. And I think that if we can kind of start wrapping this up, all of these systems have to work together. If you go out and you look at uh, some of my favorite curmudgeons and 
generally crabby people over at caferacer.com. They are constantly harping on people who want to take a GSXR front end and put it on a 1970 CB750. It's like, okay, that fat tire and those really stiff forks are going to do nothing but show how flexible your frame is. You know, you can't take two things and merge them together that way from and and completely change all of the components and make them stiffer because you've got stiffer wheels, stiffer forks, you know, all these things, and then turn around and say, well, gee, I don't, I don't know why it's not handling like a GSXR, or I'm not even sure it's going to handle as good as, or be as safe as, or predictable as the CB750 that you started with. Mm-hmm. Some of that, though, well, some of, I, I would say it comes down to two things. That a lot of that is is just a style issue, right? They want something that just looks more modern or just looks more substantial in the front for a style. Okay, I yes, get that. Yes, but they won't admit it, and I, you can't tell them that. <laughs> right. Well, and then the second side of that is sort of twofold: is a better brakes, much better brakes, and modern tire choices. Right. So that would be, oh, which is I think it's 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 an understandable thing that you want to do. It's just that a lot of people don't take into account the fact that it's one whole system that has to work together. And sometimes those really great new brakes are going to no longer be the weakest link and you're going to find that you have problems somewhere else. A good example of this, I was reading, oh, I can't think who it was, somebody in Classic Racer, the British magazine, and I'm going to probably be going back 10 or 15 years here, he was talking about when he was working for Greaves and they had this GP bike. They had a cast piece up by the steering head and then a tube that was welded to it, a, a regular mild steel tube went down to the front of the engine. And that kept cracking. So they went ahead and made a little gusset and extended it down and it cracked at the bottom of that. So they made the gusset even bigger, and they weld plates on it and everything, and it was cracking all the way down at the bottom. They finally got rid of the cast piece and just welded the tube directly to the steering head, completely went away, no cracking. Logically, you're thinking, no, you made it weaker. You should have more problems with it. But when you talk about, you know, harmonic vibrations and, and natural frequencies and stuff like that, they were trying to beef it up when, in reality, what the system needed was less rigidity in that part of the frame. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, have we beat it to death? Are we done? Well, we've talked about suspension. We didn't get to frames too much, but we did we did we did talk a lot about suspension. Yeah. Then maybe that's well, up for another day cuz there's I mean, my <laughs> head just exploded with all the things you could talk about <clears throat> with frames. If you want to read about frames, eurospares.com and go to his frame building web pages it's kind of disorganized it's a lot of stuff is like transcripts of forum chats back before the World Wide web was out there and people were using uh usenet and stuff like that but it's worth digging through because it's fascinating just things about tubing diameter and wall thickness and uh well if you go back and you look at some of the early aluminum framed bikes they were still narrow diameter they were square but they were using square aluminum frame tubes mm -hmm. and it wasn't until they came up with the big spar frames that they could really use aluminum frames really effectively and make them so much stronger so it's kind of again you get that you got a material you exploit the material you come up with a better design the design lends itself to other materials as soon as you change the paradigm you open up a whole new set of possibilities which then get exploited either through materials manufacturing technology design all that kind of stuff it's really cool so yeah. i'm loath to link anyone to his site for many personal reasons but superbike planet had a decent write-up about anthony kobas when he died from back in 2004 and i put the i sent you the link in the thing there pete um and and anthony or antonio kobas is really the father of the modern aluminum twin spar frame and it's right. pretty interesting there's a there's been a bunch that's been written in the last 10 years or 12 years since he died uh, but this is kind of a 
nice overview. The the guy who wrote it, Evan Williams, used to be a really well. I can't say he he didn't stop being, but I haven't read anything from him in a long time. But he used to be a really good writer, and it's just a nice, quick little thing. And then you know you can poke around the internet and find other stuff about him. But truly brilliant guy, and really changed how motorcycle frame design, you know, really changed how motorcycle frames looked and worked. So, anyways, yeah. One thing that's uh, I will share that I, uh, in talking about all this, one thing, if you go way back when, and you look at like pre-war frames, a lot of them were brazed. They were, they did a lot of brass brazing because they, MIG welding wasn't really developed. They could do gas welding, but it was, it was hard to manufacture. So when you brass braze, you don't actually change the molecular makeup of the, of the stuff you're sticking together. Your frame right. tubes and stuff. So people say, well, it's not as strong as welding. And when you're welding it, you're literally fusing those molecules together. The fact is that a lot of times you can braze stuff strong enough that you'll bend the tube before you'll break the braze. And there's a guy that I have been following. I don't know if he's finished it or whatever, but a while back I was in, completely does all of his custom frames using brass gas brazing. He's literally tested it to the point of failure, and he's like, you will crush these tubes before you will get one of these to break. And they're just absolutely gorgeous, like old bicycles. And that's another example of somebody taking technology that everybody says, is, oh, that's old hat, and really making it work out on the road. And to me, that's really what makes motorcycles so fascinating is they wear all their insides on the outside. I walk mm -hmm. up to a car, I see fenders. I don't see exactly how all the components of the engine and the suspension and the suspension arms and everything all work together because you don't see it unless you crawl underneath it. Yeah, oh, very true. Okay, well, I have certainly monopolized the conversation, but I got excited. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we will have our discussion of investment bikes. What bikes may go up in value? Yeah. Uh any final thoughts? Need to plug all of our stuff? Yeah. Find us on Twitter. Uh, we are at the false neutral and facebook.com, the, the false neutral. And please uh, find us on iTunes and rate us. That would be a big help. And on Hooniverse, leave a comment. And if you find have, our other sister podcasts, go ahead, Pete. And if you're looking for <clears throat> our posts on Universe, they go live at 7.30 Pacific time every Tuesday morning. So anytime during the day Tuesday, you can scroll through the front page and find them. If you want to uh, find them and they're not handy, just type in in the search box, false neutral, all one word, and that will pull up all of our podcasts because I always put in false neutral as one word in our tags. So you can find them on Hooniverse that way. And hopefully you will want to do that and leave us a comment or two. We always enjoy hearing from people. Gentlemen, thank you. Always good getting together. Absolutely. And uh, we will see you all next week. <laughs>